You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Good morning, y'all. My name's Taylor Dedeke. Uh Sorry, I was singing pretty hard back there, so my voice is going away a little bit. Um, yeah, I serve on the prayer team here, so we're the ones up here with the yellow lanyards that just want to see the Lord come and work in y'all's lives. So uh, we're reading from Galatians 3, 1 through 5 today. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? or by hearing with faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. A couple of things just as I dive in. If there is, first of all, thank you. I know it's not easy to get in here right now. Uh, and you made it. Congratulations. Um, Suite 165 is full. Uh, and we've got about 12 people that are still out there just hoping that there's a seat somewhere around you. So if there's an open seat next to you, we just raise your hand where you are. Uh, and we're going to come fill that. Um, so you get that hand high like we're not Baptist. That'll be happy. That'll be great. Um, and while you keep that hand up until they find you, um, let me say this. Hey, Joe, I wanted to come and hug you before service started, but I didn't get a chance to do it. And for someone with no voice, watching you worship Jesus as we sing is a pretty, pretty awesome sight. And so I love you, buddy. Sad I didn't get to get over there and give you uh, a hug. Um, it was 2007, uh, and I was on a bit of a quest. Uh, things here at the village back in 07, I see a couple of you shaking hands. They were here. Man, it was grimy. Uh, we found a kid, uh, 20-something-year-old, in the Martin Building bathroom with a needle in his arm, um, over- overdosed, uh, who actually ended up coming, uh, becoming a believer in Christ and walking out of his life of addiction. And, and the kind of testimonies that we were hearing um, were, were of the grimy sort. It was pulling out of addiction, pulling out of perversity, pulling out of adultery, pulling out. There was one weekend in particular uh, where we had, we had had a couple that had been here a long time share their story uh, of adultery and divorce and then remarriage. And, and I, I think that week, maybe 15 people uh, came forward and confessed that they had had an affair, that they had been keeping secret. Uh, and so needless to say, we learned that week Unless you're prepared for that, let's, let's not do that. And, um, but, it, but it was really grimy, but I was on this quest to try to figure out what in the world was going on here. Because although we had plenty of those stories, predominantly uh, the story um, the, of, of conversion here at the village um, was one of they grew up in church. Uh, they had gone to youth camp. They, they had grown up with moms and dads that loved Jesus. And somewhere along the way, uh, they bailed. And their testimony was the thing that was disorienting to me. The testimony was always um, that they had never heard the gospel. That they had grown up in church and they had heard how they were meant to behave. They heard Christian morality. But they had ever actually never heard uh, the gospel uh, and, and I was on that, this quest to, to find out whether that was true or not because it was hard for me to get my mind around 
um, that this concept or this idea that you could grow up in church your whole life and never actually hear uh, about the kind of love relationship that Jesus wants with you uh, rather than a list of moral decrees that you're meant to white knuckly and with great discipline fulfill. Um, and so I'm at Starbucks. It's 2007. I'm on a quest. And I'm drinking an Americano, Grande Americano. It's not a great Americano. It's a Starbucks Americano. It's fine. And uh, Starbucks wasn't in our parking lot at the time. It was over where I'm, I'm not, I'm directionally challenged, but I think it's this. this oh, my wife's like, wow. Uh, yeah. So I was at where Starbucks used to be. And I'm sitting across the table from uh, probably a young 30-something-year-old man. And he's snot and tears. He, he's not like welling up in his eyes. He's the kind of crying that you might find yourself embarrassed to be sitting across from. And with snot and tears, he's trying to wrestle through whether his conversion and baptism as an eight-year-old was legitimate or whether or not it was something he did for his mom. And he recounted uh, quite a bit of heartbreak as he tried with all his might to live into the expectations that mom and church had for him. He, he recounted quite a bit of loss as he, as he very openly and honestly shared with me some pretty epic failures in his life. Look at me, the kind of failures that fundamentalists would say would make you unwelcome in a place like this. And, and as I listened through the heaving and the wiping, and the, I, I began to kind of understand what we were up against in the Bible Belt. Yesterday, I did the funeral for Jane Thompson. If you didn't know Jane Thompson, you missed out. Jane Thompson was 82 years old when she went home to be with the Lord. She was hosting a young adults gathering in her home as an 82-year-old. She refused to get crusty as she got older. She refused to look at the next generation as something to lament, but rather as an opportunity to herald the majesty of Jesus. And here's what was wild. Jane was so... Um, I. I Feisty is probably not the right word, uh, but it's close to the right word. Um, I was literally surprised yesterday that Jane's daughter didn't hand me my sermon from her uh, mom to, to do her funeral with. That's the kind of woman she was. But about a month ago, for a future series, we filmed Jane's whole story, 12 minutes. And, and so in a way, I showed that yesterday. So she kind of did her own funeral, uh, which would be just like Jane. But... Um, her testimony was this. It, it, was, it reminded me of all of this, which is why I'm laying it before you today, and it just works so perfectly with where I want to go today. Jane was um, adopted as a young woman into a fundamentalist Christian home. Uh, and when I say fundamentalist, you've got to take F-U-N out of that, right? It was, um, there's no dancing, there's no secular music, there's no, and there's probably some latent wisdom in some of that, um, but, it, but it was the, the checklist of rules. Are you checking, trekking with me on that? You know what I mean when I'm talking about Christianity as a checklist uh, rather than a, a living, vibrant love relationship with Jesus? Well, that's what she grew up in. Uh, like, you weren't allowed to dance, but you could put on skates and go to the skating rink and dance on Friday night, right? You, you couldn't dance, but you go to a foot function. You just can't call it that, right? It's that kind of weird hypocrisy that always tends to follow fundamentalism. Well, that's what she grew up in. And look at me, she was good at it. She was good at it. So she got married to Bob, actually got engaged her senior year of high school. It was a different day. Amen. It was a different day. 
And so literally she's got the ring on at graduation. That's how she's letting her crew know that guess what? And, and, and she gets married to Bob and, and they're both kind of in this stream of fundamentalism and um, it, she's killing it. I mean, she's good at it. And so by the time she's 38, she's a deacon's wife. She plays the piano at church. You remember those days? Anybody over 40 grew up kind of in church? Like the piano player, right? She's singing that turn, turn to hymn 38. We're going to sing the first and third stanza. And not dogged. There's some beauty in that. But, but Jane's the one on the piano. And so she's teaching in youth groups. She's playing the piano. Um, she plays the piano on a Sunday. She goes and she sits down in the congregation. The pastor's preaching a message. Small church. And in the middle of his sermon, Jane, this is her testimony, we'll eventually put out the story for you to watch. In the middle of his sermon, Jesus, according to Jane, whispers, it would have been the Holy Spirit, whispered to Jane, you don't know me. You know about me, but you don't know me. If you knew Jane, Jane was not like, well, thank you. That, it made her angry. And she began to explain to Jesus why he was wrong. She, she had this kind of epically long lists of justification at why she was. Are you with me in this? Like, I play the piano. I'm a deacon's wife. I, I don't cuss, drink, or smoke, or tolerate those who do. I don't, right? I mean, that's, that's the game. You're giggling, but that's the game. And, and, I mean, according to her testimony, Jesus listens patiently to all of that. And is like, great, but you don't know me. And that afternoon, this is just the gutsiest, I think one of the gutsiest things I've ever heard. That afternoon, she goes home. She opens up the Gospel of Luke. She's wrestling with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. And, and by the middle of the afternoon, she's like, dang it, I'm not a Christian. And she accepts Christ as a 38-year-old deacon's wife who plays band. Well, wait, we're not done. She goes back to Sunday night church. Do you remember that? A di whole different service. Whole different sermon. Whole different I might be having some ideas right now. And, and I'm not. I am not. And um, she's playing the piano at the end during the invitation. Do you remember the invitation? Like, you know, if you want to, Jesus is up here. So if you want to become a Christian, come up here. It's where he is. Repeat after me. And, and then that's going to make you a Christian, right? Which is, I understand the mechanism, but we're not witches. Repeating things don't make things happen. And um, Jane's playing the piano. And again, the Holy Spirit's like, Okay, now, now. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm playing the invitation. <laughs> and she says, the spirit's like, oh, I, yeah, I know, but, but let's go now. Well, I teach the youth and they're here. They're not going to understand. Oh, I know, but now. Well, but I'm, I'm playing the piano. It's, it's already going to be weird. It's going to be weirder. And in obedience, she stops playing the piano at the invitation. So now it's dead silent. And she walks out from behind the piano and walks up the aisle and in front of everybody who thought that she was a mature believer, gives her life to Jesus for the first time. And, and Jane, if you knew her, she never actually recovered from that. And so it's 2007 and I'm on this quest. What in the world is going on here? How can so many 20 and 30-somethings say to me with a straight face that I grew up in church, I grew up going to youth camp, I grew up in VBS, I grew up and no one ever told me about the gospel. 
I knew what I should do and what I shouldn't do. I knew the morality of the kingdom, but I knew nothing of intimacy with Jesus. No one had ever laid that before me. And so I'm navigating this young man's soul and his history. Did I actually surrender my life to Jesus when I was eight? Or was I just trying to please my mom? And I know and believe that an eight-year-old can surrender to Jesus and fall in love with him at eight. It's my wife's story. Now, she has, she has had awakenings and quickenings and increases in faith and increases in experience. But to this day, she would say, no, I knew him at eight. I loved him at eight. As best I knew with an eight-year-old heart, I was crazy about him. And, and so I, I wonder, especially maybe even more so after yesterday, which, by the way, her funeral was single-handedly one of the most encouraging things I've ever been to in my life. Nine grandchildren testify of Gma's faithfulness as the root of their own, right? I mean, that just any sacrifice is worth it is what I came away from after Jane's funeral yesterday. And yet, um, I wonder, even in here today, here we are in the Bible Belt, a place where we're all Christians, right? Like, like how many of us are assaulted by um, what, what I think is what the Apostle Paul is going to call being bewitched, either moving from the real gospel to a false one or having false assurance when you shouldn't have any. And so I have in my heart a great deal of angst and hope today. That maybe together in looking at the word of God, we might be able to answer the question of whether we know the gospel, whether we are sons and daughters of the king. And if we have fallen asleep, if we have fallen under a spell, is the way the apostle Paul would talk about it. That the Holy Spirit would quicken and wake us. Or if we've never really surrendered and never had a relationship with Jesus, but have been really working hard religiously, that we might be able to spring out of that into the joy and vitality of life in Jesus. But all of that will be up to the Holy Spirit and not me. Um, in Galatians, like here's the thing about the gospel. The thing that's striking about the gospel in the Bible is 90% of the time the gospel is proclaimed, it's proclaimed to Christians, not non-Christians. So that the gospel seems, if you pull that thread in the Bible, to be aimed at believers just as much, if not more than unbelievers. And in our day, it's flipped. That the gospel is for unbelievers and is a door that you and I walk through and then don't have to worry anymore. But that's not though how the Bible talks about the gospel. It, it says that you and I are in desperate need to repeatedly be re-gospeled and, and to understand it and walk in it. That we're prone to forget, that we're prone to drift. And that's why uh, the Apostle Paul, specifically in Galatians, goes right at this about as aggressively uh, as he goes at anything. The Apostle Paul almost always starts his letters to the churches with some kind of grace and peace to you, love you, hope you're doing well, hope things are... And that is not the tone of Galatians. Let, let me show you the pre... The, the, before we get to our primary text today, which is in Galatians 3, here's Galatians 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, 
But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, we're in week two of a series called Awake and Alive. The ideas out of Ephesians 5 where Christians can fall asleep to really significant and meaningful doctrines that are meant to give us life and vitality. And so we said last week that happens in one of three ways. One, um, we called it the anesthesia of deceit. This is where the enemy begins to, um, when life gets hard, question how good God is. Begins to question the character of God. Begins to question the, the goodness of God. The enemy rarely comes at you head on. No, he's more subversive of that. He's really good at what he does. So he doesn't come to Eve and go, hey, you want to bite a fruit? He says, did God really say? Isn't God holding out on you? If God really knew your story, don't you deserve this? Don't you need this to be fully alive? Why would he keep happiness from you? Why would he take this from you? He's God, why would you, right? You remember this? And it puts us to sleep. It's not the sin itself. It's the questioning of the goodness and mercy of God because it's the goodness and mercy of God that are the fuel to vitality in the Christian life. What fuels me, drives me, sustains me, builds me up, it's the goodness and mercy of Jesus. It's, it's that he knew what I was and still saved me. It's that I still screw up all the time and he hadn't, he hadn't changed his mind, that he's doubled down, that he's all in. That's, that's the vitality of the Christian life. You don't get that. There, there's no energy. There's just your discipline. White-knuckled, hopeless discipline over a long period of time. Soul crushing, man-centered, twisting of what was divine. It's the anesthesia of deceit. But it's not just that, it's rootlessness. It's when we have an experience of God, we're quickened and awakened to the things of God, but do nothing with it. So then our relationship with God becomes like bumper sticker theologies and weak platitudes that are more than likely Benjamin Franklin and nowhere in the Bible. And then lastly, if it's not rootlessness and it's not the anesthesia of deceit, it's that it gets choked out, right? Put to sleep by the cares of this world, which is uncertainty and anxiety. It's giving ourselves over to uncertainty and anxiety. I told you last week, I'll say it again. The only thing that is certain for you today and for the rest of your life is uncertainty. It's the only thing that you can be certain about uncertainty. But when you begin to fixate on it and all of life is future-based rather than present reality, look, I love you. The only place you'll ever hear from the Lord is in the present. The only place you'll ever experience his power and grace is now. You're not going to feel it. You're not going to get it tomorrow because tomorrow's got enough of its own. So Jesus says, but right now, oh, I got you right now. I got none for you right there. We're not there yet. Come right now. Come now. So uncertainty and anxiety is almost always future-based. And, and Jesus is interested in the now, not then. He's already there. Like, this will bend your brain, and then I need to, I need to get on this because this is already, we're halfway there. My time is halfway there. Let me say that. Our, our persistent looking back on the past, 
and being anxious and worried about the future is one of the more life-sucking, soul-draining things that Christians will give themselves over to. It chokes it out of them. Do you know that God is outside of time in a way that we're inside of time? Which means, and this hurts, I mean, it hurts. So the past and present aren't things God knows about. It's places he simultaneously is. Right? I mean, that, that bends the brain. I don't know what to do with it. I, I can't even, if I think too much about it, something cramps up there and, and I need to lay down. But God, he's, your future isn't this thing he knows about. Oh, the, the, he, he's, he's outside of it all. He sees all of it as kind of this thing. That's impl- it should create humility in us, not swagger. It's the present that we'll hear from the Lord. And you, you concentrate on uncertainty. You concentrate on anxiety. You give yourself over to that. Choked out. Asleep of no concern. So Paul writes to the church at Galatia what we read earlier. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing and through faith? So in Galatia, the gospel went out, it was received, it sprung up with great gladness, and then this group of people called the Judaizers from Jerusalem swung into Galatia and they began to teach that in order to be a Christian, you had to conform to the moral and dietary law of the Old Testament, that you had to be circumcised, that you couldn't eat that pork sandwich anymore, that you had to put that crispy bacon down. And people started to buy it. Jesus isn't enough, it's Jesus plus the law. And they began to be deceived. And Paul's talk is like bewitched, like they give you the evil eye, they put a spell on you, and he's confounded, he's like, what happened to you? And the way he tries to wake them up, the way he tries to pull them into the goodness of Jesus is asking them about their story, asking them about their testimony. Did you say, I'd like to learn one thing from you and true to preacher form, he asked four. <laughs> but here's what he asked. Here's his question. How'd this thing start? How'd this thing get started? You and Jesus, this relationship. How'd that happen? Now, Here's what's awesome. I, I know how it happened for you and for me. It happened for all of us in the same way. So let me highlight this. This is uh, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world was laid, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here, look at me. This is where we all start. 
You did not become a Christian because you were messing around with the devil's lettuce and stopped. Devil's lettuce is weed, if you weren't with me. You did not become a Christian because you were an adulterous, promiscuous, wild thing and you stopped. You did not become a Christian because you had a a foul mouth and now you don't. You did not become a Christian because you were a drunk and now you don't drink. You did not become a Christian because you fill in the blank. That's not how you were saved. You were saved at your worst. You were saved, listen to me, before the foundation of the earth was laid. The Lord said, I'm going to love him. I'm going to love her. That's your story. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the, the spectrum. Some of you got saved out of church stuff. Legalism. Some of you got saved out of license. Both of you decided that you were a better God than God. There is a way to tell God you don't need him with frantic religious activity. And there is a way to tell God you don't need him by doing whatever you want to do. And he's saying, that's where you were when in love Jesus moved towards you and saved you. While you were at your worst before the foundation of the earth was laid. Like I'll ask you, how many of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross? (laughs) Unless you have got a wild testimony, all of them. Like, but, he, but he saved you. So oftentimes at the end of our service, I'll say things like this. Like, Jesus knew what he was buying on the cross. Like, he knew what you were when he saved you. He's outside of time. He, he, knew, he knew how goofy your tail is. He knew how, confu- how easily confused you get. He knew how hard it was going to be to climb that hill. He, and he came to you and he rescued you and he saved you. You did nothing to be saved. You received You received, but something bewitched. And now it was, I was saved, but I've got to now earn this thing that I was given. And you can start to see the three tactics of the enemy happen. You can see almost immediately the anesthesia of deceit. Surely he can't love you like that. Oh my gosh, who could love you? Like you you are so disappointing. I mean, you're disappointing to you. How do you think God feels? Oh, you've got to confess this again? Oh, I can only imagine that God is done with you. One of the more heartbreaking parts of being a pastor is the number of people when life gets hard that tie it to something they didn't do or should have done, and that's why that hard thing's happening to them. That's the anesthesia of deceit. Your kid doesn't get sick because you're not having a quiet time. That's a demonic, asinine idea. Where's that coming from? Your marriage isn't hard because, like, listen. Don't listen to the lie that tries to put you to sleep. God is good. He's moved towards you in love. He, he purchased you at your worst, not at your best. Not when you figured things out. God help us. We, we so think the spiritual life is static and up and to the right. And this thing's the long journey home. It is two steps forward, one step back, but that's still one step forward. It is, I thought I had victory. Oh, no, I didn't. Let's take it back to Jesus again. 
It is the long-suffering, keep pressing in. I'm not going to believe the lie of the enemy. I'm going to receive his grace anew. Mercies are new in the morning. Get back up and get back after it. Faith that marks genuine believers. It marks genuine believers. It's what keeps us humble. And then you want to talk about rootlessness? How often Christians are choked out of the glory of the gospel by rootlessness? Like, man, I, I would, I, I think the best way to describe this is what God has offered you as a covenantal relationship, which means I'm, I'm with you no matter what, and you try to trade it for a contractual relationship. That, that's what happens. It's rootlessness. It's a misunderstanding of who he actually is. It's, it's thin and weak and will not prevail. So God's saying covenant no matter what. By me, not by you, you're weak. But by me, you're my son, you're my daughter, I'm your father. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are yours. And you respond to that with like, or how about I try to do better in these places. And when I do better in these places, I might be able to believe that that's true about me. What the heck are you doing? What? I love you, I want a relationship with you. Okay, as long as I can base that on my effort. As long as that whole thing works itself out by me trying to be better. No, you were a train wreck when he saved you, either religiously or irreligiously. And that's when he committed. Aren't, look at me. Aren't you farther along than you thought you'd be? I mean, you're not where you want to be. I'm not. 30 years in, I'm like, really? This still? But man, I'm farther than I thought I'd be. Don't let anyone bewitch, bewitch you. And then I want to point this out because I think it's important. Um, the, the way that kind of being, you know, getting choked out by um, the, the kind of love of wealth probably plays out when it comes to the gospel is that you can learn a local congregation's commodities and pretend. Do you understand what I mean by that? So you can join a church and you go, oh, this church values this, this, and this. Let me do this, this, and this, and not ever actually have a love relationship with Jesus. You can put on the clothes. You can embrace the culture. You can figure out, oh, this church values this. Let me do these things and do all of that and not not have a deep love relationship with Jesus, which is what he wants to root the whole relationship in. Did you know that? That where... The Bible teaches and where Jesus commands that our faith is rooted is not in an ever-increasing knowledge that we can't possibly uh, obey at every turn, but rather in a love and understanding of his love that keeps us tethered to him, come what may, and over time transforms us. Listen, this is here it is. Uh, I'll, I'll read it to you in Ephesians. This is Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the fullness of God. Do you see where he wants to root you? Not in, what's the list? Just tell me what to do. And he's like, no, be with me. Tell me what to, no, be with me. 
And most of us didn't have moms and dads like that, so we just can't. We're so flippin' broken that that invitation feels disingenuous. It's like, no, it can't be true. Just tell me what to do. We're the, we're the prodigal son coming home and like, maybe he'll let me be a slave. And he's saying, no, 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 just be with me. Just root yourself. I love you. Root yourself in my love. You're going to blow it. I'm right here. I'm so committed. I'm committed to you with my broken body and blood. I'm here for you. I want you. And I want you for the long haul. It's going to be messy and awful. And you're my guy. And the enemy wants to take that from us. It drives me crazy for you and for me. The Lord wants us. Here's what I need to be careful of. And I'm, this is, I'm transitioning into my conclusion. What the, 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 the thread of the needle has to be that the Holy Spirit's going to grow us and increase our external moral holiness. But the way to do that, yes, is to fight, yes, is to be serious about sin, yes, is to have some discipline, but is wickedness is driven out by greater affection. You lose affection for this when the affection for this overpowers this. Not when you just decide, I'm done with porn forever. It's fueling affection for Jesus that drives out lesser affections. And the light and life of coming awake to either I've never really given my life to Jesus, I don't have a relationship with him, or just waking back up to the goodness of personal relationship with Jesus is assurance, and assurance does a lot for vitality of spiritual life. I wanna, throw you, I wanna show you three signposts in First John, that's meant to root you in your insurance, or look at me, take your assurance away from you if you, you shouldn't have it. But what I want, what, what I've really hoped as I've gotten ready for this weekend, you leave this room with, you walk out, is the gospel isn't something that you attach to your personality that makes uh, all of your physical, emotional, psychological, and mental things better. It's that the gospel reconciles you to God and that's where you were created to dwell and be. And from that, the side fruit, the ancillary fruit, is that those things oftentimes will get better. Sometimes the Lord binds us to himself with some of that stuff. Reminds us that we desperately need him because if, it, if he relieved all of that for us, we'd go off on our own like we don't need him. And that would be crushing to us rather than helpful. But let me walk you through these three signposts of assurance or let me do this. Let me help you get assurance or let me in love take your assurance from you. We okay? Yes. All right, I'm, I'm nervous too. Here's the first one. The, the first one, you wanna be assured that you've believed in the gospel and you're walking with Jesus in an intimate relationship. It requires belief and, and not belief like you believe in Abraham Lincoln. Not he was a historical figure at one point. No, we, we believe that he's the son of God, co-eternal with the father, and his life, death, and resurrection has taken away the sins of the world and in his grace and mercy brought forgiveness and life to all who would believe by faith in that grace. Not only is there belief, this is 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, that this life is in his son, 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not George Washington. It's not Abraham Lincoln. It's Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm pushing all my chips in on it. It's not the, yeah, I know, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in this 401k. Uh, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in hard work. And, uh, right? I believe in Jesus. And, no, it's, I'm pushing my chips in. There is no plan B for me. I believe. But it's not just belief. And I want to be careful here, but direct. It's also growing external holiness. 1 John 3, 6 through 9, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This is a refrain throughout the scriptures. In Romans 6, it says, Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? May it never be. It's stronger than that. It's, hey, you're not a Christian. If you can... I believe in Jesus and not care at all how you live. I would gently, um, no, I would, because I love you, take your shirt. I just want to say what Paul says in Romans 6 1. You're not a Christian, man. I'm sorry. I, I know you got baptized when you were six. You consider yourself a good person. You, you just practice sinning all the time. That, that's not stumbling. Practicing isn't stumbling. You with me? We all stumble. First John also says, if anyone says he is without sin, he, he's, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. So this isn't saying you, you don't stumble. This is saying you don't practice. And I mean, you, you've been baptized, you, you church folk, you're a moral person, but your life is marked by a practice of sinning and ongoing unrighteousness that you're not willing to put to death or do anything about. I, I could not, in any kind of understanding of the scriptures or Christian history, go, no, you can do that and be a Christian. You can be that way and call yourself. I don't, I don't know. There, there's nothing in the Bible, nothing in Christian history that would create a category like do whatever you want, but as long as you believe that Jesus was the son of God and, and the king of uh, the universe but but don't do anything he says like it's madness it's not there and in galatians 5 he teaches that those who walk in the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of god and john 15 says you'll know a tree by its fruit now i want to highlight this again this is not a reference to the stumbler i'm not trying to take assurance from the stumbler i want to build it in you hate sin you you serious about putting it to death and it's man it's just a fight <laughs> welcome man we're your kind of place. You're just in a room full of it. You're just in a room full of it. But I could not let you stay in confidence. If you plunge headlong into sin, if you practice wickedness, if you not only stumble but habitually walk in wickedness, listen, I'm, there's nothing cruel about what I'm doing here. You cannot consider yourself a Christian. There's no fruit that you are. Like none. Belief is not enough. Belief and an ongoing shaping to external moral holiness according 
to God's commands and scriptures. Messy, slow, stumbling. You're not looking for a vineyard in your life. You're looking for a grape. I'm telling you, you're not looking for a, a vineyard of obedience. You're like, dang, a little grape right here. We'll take it. There used to not be any grapes. There's a grape now. Celebrate that grape until it comes a cluster. Celebrate the cluster until it comes a, a, a vineyard. Lastly, so we're, we're looking for assurance. We're looking, I am a believer. I'm bought by the blood of Jesus. I mean, I believe I can look at my life and go, man, I'm not where I want to be, but man, we've grown some. And then lastly, another signpost that you belong to Jesus, that you believe the gospel, that you're not asleep, that your submission to him when you were eight is real, is that you love the brothers, those who belong to him, our sisters and brothers. Here's what he says in 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Man, I wish I had more time, but let me say this quickly. This does not say that you have to like us all. It just says you have to love us all. And, and the way you can love but not necessarily like is to understand that we're all caught up in the same story. Like, here's what I know about you. If you're 20 years behind me or 20 years ahead of me, both of us had this day where the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And I am being transformed from one degree of glory just as you are being transformed from one degree of glory. So I can celebrate your wins. I can lament your losses because I share in those losses. I've, I've stumbled. You, you can share in my victories because I've won. And now all of a sudden, uh, although there might be something about you that bothers me a little bit, certainly there'd probably be something about me that bothers you uh, a little bit. And yet in this, we got this shared experience, this shared story. And so I love you. And this might get me in trouble, but I think at this point that ship's burned. Um, <laughs> Those who do nothing but accuse the brethren are of Satan and not of Christ. Repeatedly through the scripture, those whose, it becomes their job, their fixation, their, that what they're going to do is they're going to police the brethren and critique and hammer and point out failures. The only one that is called the accuser of the brethren throughout the scriptures are Satan and demonic principalities and powers. So I would not build your house there. Should you be wise and discerning? Absolutely. Should you have a critical spirit that weighs in on everybody else while minimizing your own sin? I think you're sound asleep or not a believer if that's the default position you have towards the brethren. We're goofy, weak, dumb. You should feel right at home. There is a love for the brethren that marks those who are genuinely alive in Christ. So... I'm a minute and 32 seconds over. Don't. Um, I'm here for like another 20-something years. We've got plenty of time to do this. But for today, for today, like in Jesus, when Jesus says, uh, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. He didn't say teaching them to know all I commanded. It's teaching them to obey. Like, what's the means? So, so in light of what we just said, what... What should you do? So here, new conviction. I don't ever want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads again. I don't ever want to dim lights again. I don't even, like, I don't, if you can't be bold in this room, surrounded by people who do nothing but rejoice in what God's doing in your life, I got zero confidence you'd actually be bold out there. 
So I said last week, I'll say again, with every eye opened and every head up and the lights as bright as they get in the room, ish. I, I wonder if, if you would say, like we did last week, man, I, my life is filled with frenetic religious activity. And I, I have felt my love for Jesus shrivel, shrink, and dry up so much so that I feel near to Jesus when I'm checking all the boxes and I feel far from him when I'm not doing everything that I think I'm supposed to do to earn his love. And I, don't, I wanna wake up from that, I wanna repent of that and, and just lay back in to his love for me and his delight in me and his acceptance of me. If that's you and you're just like, man, I'm a really religiously busy person, but man, my, my spirit's tired and not. Well, if that's you, just raise your hand where you are. Yeah, look around, like be encouraged. This happens to us, it happens to all. We, we get wooed, we get lulled, we fall asleep. And I said it last week, I wanna say it again, like God loves you. He's just like, don't do that, I love it, I want you. Great, you're in this program. Great, you signed up for a home group. Great, you got this, this, and this, but I want you. And then I wonder if anyone would be so bold. And I, I'm totally not wrapped up in this. If there's no one, great. I, I wonder if some of you would be like, oh, trash. Man, I walked an aisle when I was seven. And I shook a hand and I repeated a thing and I got baptized. But there's been zero fruit, zero evidence in my life from that moment until this moment. And I, I'm just realizing maybe for the first time, I don't. I don't know that I've ever actually said yes to Jesus. I don't know that I've ever actually surrendered to him and said, I want a love relationship with you. I, yes, I, I want to follow you and pursue you. And, and yes, I want to be conformed into your image. But, but, but I want to enter into that. I've never really said yes to that. Is there anybody in here to be like, oh my gosh, man, I, I did it when I was a kid. I'm just not quite sure that's where I am. It's okay if you're not here, but, but I wonder if you are. I wonder if you're like Jane, like, oh my gosh, I'm 38 and just figured out I'm not really a Christian. Anybody in here would say that? Okay, praise God. So here's what we're going to do. Thank you, by the way, sis. That's awesome. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to stand up. We're going to sing. Got a couple of baptisms today that I'm pumped about. And then at the end of the service, we'll be dismissed. And there'll be some men and women up front. And if that was you and you're like, golly, I fell asleep. I don't want to be religiously active. I want to walk with Jesus intimately. I, 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 or if you, you were the one, the, the young woman in here that's like, oh my gosh. Oh no. I... I I'm, I'm caught up in moralistic deism, but I don't know him. Man, just come let us know. We want to pray with you and bless you and walk alongside of you as we come awake and alive together. Father, I bless these men and women. Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you. You love us. You move towards us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us, and you are going to conform us into the image of your son, not based on our white-knuckled discipline, but on the delight that flows from knowing you. You just become better than all of that stuff. Help us hate sin. Help us love you. Conform us to your image. Wake us up. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Would you